If you've got your Bibles with you, open those to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to look under the seat there um, right underneath you and, and grab a, a paper copy. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, that one's yours to keep. We hope that you'll do that. Um, if you're a regular with us, or if, uh, actually if you're new as well, we've been walking through Colossians for the last couple of months, and um, I am I'm not the pastor. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, uh, our Pastor Derek, uh, who's been uh, doing the majority of our walking through Colossians uh, with us, is on vacation, vacation this week, so um, that opens the door for uh, me, I guess, uh, win-win, right? Win for Derek, win for me, um, to, to, come and, uh, to come and speak, and so... Um, <coughs> This is, uh, as was just read, when you read the words, we're going we're gonna to unpack this uh, in, in pretty good uh, detail here in just a, a few minutes. Um, this is a, a mission text, and if, you're, um, if you've been to a, a missionary commissioning service or um, <laughs> anything along that nature, you hear uh, anything along the lines of missions, you hear this text a lot of times uh, preached or taught or spoken about. Um, in the context of, of sending, um, sending people into the hard-to-reach uh, areas of the, of the world. And you know, we are certainly going to, to, to look at that. And as I was thinking about it over the course of this week, I realized maybe for, for those of us who, who call Tri-Cities a home, um, this is almost the, the, the instinct, I think, would be to get a little like rinse and repeat mindset because uh, we hear this so much. Uh, and for those of you who are, who are new, uh, maybe here for the first time, um, one of the major focuses of this church uh, desire is to reach the nations. That it's not just about us. It's not just about this building. It's not just about the other campus and, and their building. That we, um, as a church body, are on mission for His glory. And what his glory is, is to make his name known, not just here in East Tennessee, not just in the Bible Belt, not just in the South uh, or uh, United States, but to all nations. So he wants all people to know who he is. And it's our mission. We take that upon ourselves as, as a church body uh, to, to make that our mission as well. And so uh, don't hear this today and immediately go into, oh, I've heard this mode, okay? Uh, that's, that's probably my, my first ask. Let's, let's allow God to, to use this time together to, to speak to us, not just as a church body, because again, as a church body, we're not perfect at this, but if I were grading it, I'd, I'd say we're doing pretty well. The, the overall aim, the focus, the mission, we've got, we've got kids scattered all over uh, the world right now, giving up you know, parts of some of all of their summers uh, to, to make this happen. And so that's a good thing. Uh, but I want to bring this a little more personal today. I, wanna, I want us to, to examine our own lives, our own hearts, and, and ask ourselves, what, it, what does this have to do for me and in my life and the mission that, that God has called me to live out in my context? So I want to start by, by posing this question. Um, what does it mean to make Jesus Lord of your life? What does it mean to make Jesus Lord of your life? And it's a, it's a good question, I think, for both Christians and non-Christians to ask. Obviously, for those of you who aren't yet followers of Christ, you're, 
and you're sitting on the fence, you've got some things that just don't quite make sense yet, uh, this is one of the major questions that I think that you need to be asking yourself. Uh, what does it mean to, to turn away from your ideas, your path, the plans and the hopes and, and the dreams and the ways of doing things on your own? And what does it mean to turn away from that, recognize that you can't, you can't earn your way to heaven on your own. There's no, uh, even if you were to dive in and say, I'm going to do everything that, that's said today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for the harvest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all, but it, you know, if you try to do all of that in your own power, you know, with an idea of, if I do that, then Jesus will accept me. Then I'll be good enough. Then you're going to be disappointed. Because we're never going to be good enough on our own to get to heaven. We need a Savior. And so if you're wrestling with that, that's, that's a good question to ask. What does it mean to make Jesus Lord of your life? And for us as Christians, some of us have been Christians for majority, almost all of our lives. It's still a really good question to ask. Is what does it mean when, when, when we see in the Bible that we serve a, a, a jealous God, a God that wants to be number one in your life? What does it mean to, to lay everything down and follow him as we, as we saw the disciples do in the New Testament, literally just dropped the fishing poles right there on the ground and walk away. What, is that, what does that mean? Have we ever come to Christ on those kinds of terms? And, and I realize um, when I ask myself that question, how much of my life I've wanted to control on my own, how much in the back of my mind is like, yes, Jesus, you are, you are Lord of my life. I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. Just please, just don't, just let me have this one little thing, right? Just one, just don't make me do this, or don't make me go there, or don't make me talk to this person, you know, just, just let me have this. And um, it's those little things that, that keep getting exposed. And, and in Scripture, we see examples of that. We see uh, a scriptural example of, of a man who, who's, who wanted to follow Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Just let me, let me first go, let me go bury my father. And in Jewish custom, that was, you know, the burial uh, process was very important. Nobody in their right mind would ever mess with such a process. So he said, Jesus, I'm in. Just let me go, let me go bury my dad, right? I mean, bring that down to your, our level here. It's a reasonable request, right? And, and Jesus says, no, let the, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. We see another example of, of, a, of a rich young ruler who comes and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And what do I need to do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you need to keep my commandments. And he rattles off these commandments. And, and the rich young ruler is like, I've done these things. What, what, else, what else do I need to do? And at that point, Jesus peers into his, his heart, sees the one thing that is lacking. It's like, all right, one thing you've got left. I want you to sell everything that you have to the poor. Give it all away. Lay it all down and then come follow me. And man, the, as, as strong as that message is, and the strongest part of that story is the reaction. It's because the rich young ruler walks away, Scripture says, very sad. 
And I think about my own life, and I'm like, what is it? What is it if Jesus, if I were in that crowd, if Jesus were talking to me, what would he have looked into my heart and saw and exposed? And could I have taken that in that moment and, and laid it down for him? Or would I have walked away really sad? What does it mean for us to make uh, Jesus Christ Lord of our life? That is a, a, a necessary question, I think, for us to be able to, to begin to grasp uh, what this text will say. Um, another Another thought before we dig in is love for Jesus is what drives mission. Love for him. And again, it goes back to um, our own efforts. If we try to do this on our own, if we make it our own uh, mission statement for our own self or our own church to, um, for the sake of our own glory and our own credit to make this happen, we will inevitably fall short. Or the scripture says, Whatever we get here, we keep here. It stays here. Congratulations, we've got a reward. But when we get to heaven, there's nothing. And so, love for him drives mission. And that really starts with recognizing his love for us, doesn't it? In order for us to be able to fully understand um, what it means to pursue Christ, I, I think it all starts with an understanding of what he's done for us. And for you and for me, he, he gave it all. Jesus paid it all, right? We just sung that. Don't let those words ring hollow. He paid it all so that we might be saved. And so he loved us. God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, and to, to raise from the dead, all so that you might be saved. That I might be saved. That is love. Greater love with no man than this, and he laid down his life for someone else. Right? You think about those of you who have kids, you think about you know, who were the people that you'd take a bullet for, maybe like husband, spouse, hopefully. Um, <laughs> uh, your kids, you're like, I'd take a bullet for them, right? We say that all the time. I'd take a bullet for that person. Jesus took a bullet for all of us. All of us. When he did no wrong. He did no wrong. And so it's out of that love for us knowing how much he loves us, that we give that love right back to him. And that's what spurs the mission. That's what spurs everything that we're about to read and study. It's the love for us drives a love right back for him out of obedience, out of joy. Again, when you hear this, when you hear these words, when we talk about what we're going to talk about, don't hear, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I can't talk to people. I can't go overseas. I'm not, I'm not good. You don't know what I've done. Forget all of that. Lay all of that down today, guys. And I know some of those questions, if they haven't already gone in your mind, in this room, they will, they will come over the course of this next 30 minutes. Lay them down. Lay him down and just ask God, what would you have for me? Because I'm going to tell you, the Bible is filled, filled with the least, the most incapable of people 
doing the most capable of things because he is the one driving all of it. And he gets glory out of using the least of these, the weak, the powerless, the poor, the ones of us who who don't think we're good enough. He gets glory out of that. So if you're in that camp, good news. You might be up here one day or something like that. He, he, just might, he just might help you to do something that you're not capable of doing on your own. And that is what it's all about. And so love for him drives mission. And it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to accomplish this mission. We cannot do it on our own. He gives us the spirit in which to be able to, to reach to reach the lost, to share the good news. So as we look at this text today, um, I want us to, to, to key in on three observations from Jesus. Uh, and this is going to be Matthew uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 35 through 38. Number one, Jesus' mission was intentional. Jesus' mission was intentional. Verse 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And if we could summarize how Jesus spent his years in ministry, and uh, those are roughly around three, three and a half years, uh, according to, to most, it would be this. Uh, it's a, to prove, uh, to back that up, flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, listen to this, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You see the, the overlap there? This is, this is what Jesus' mission was on this earth. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. If we could summarize, if someone asked you, well, what was, what did Jesus, how did Jesus spend his time on this earth? Um, well, aside from you know, being the carpenter and a you know, young boy and growing up all these years, when he keyed in, when it came time to spend that three-plus years in ministry, this is what he did. This is how he went about his time, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Jesus was intentional, uh, listen to this, about meeting both, both the spiritual and the physical needs of those he encountered, both physical and the spiritual. This is a package deal for us as, as Christians. It's a package deal. And, and to do, to do, for us to do less than that, when we're, especially when we think about reaching lost, reaching the, the poor, um, the, uh, the underprivileged, those who are in need of, of physical help and spiritual help, it's a package deal. To do less than that weakens and sometimes completely negates the gospel message itself. Because if we're just going to meet the physical need of people and ignore the spiritual need, that sends a message that the, the gospel is less than what it declared to be, right? And, and, and I think for, I think, I think overall we can, we can make both of these errors on, on both sides, but uh, a lot of us, uh, the instinct is to, to meet that spiritual need, and we have compassion, um, that, that social justice uh, kind of mindset that wants to, to meet the needs of the people uh, who, have, who have great need. But if we don't make that connection of 
how we can ultimately need, meet the eternal need, we're, we're missing a piece, of, <laughs> a crucial piece of the gospel, aren't we? And on the flip side, at the flip side, if we get, we throw the preacher hat on, we get excited and we're just going to lay the gospel out there to everybody that we come into contact with, if we, if we negate the physical needs that are obviously present in those, people life, in those people's lives, then where does that leave us? And, you know, the Bible's, <laughs> the Bible's very, very clear that we're supposed to take care of the poor. Uh, hold your place there, Matthew. Flip over to James. James chapter 2. I don't have this on the, on the screen, so um, if you're not following along, you can just, just listen to this part. James chapter 2, verses uh, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. And James here is making a, a connection between uh, the faith that we have internally ultimately driving if the faith that's in our lives is, is true and it's truly taken hold of us, the result is action, action. And so uh, it gives an example of, um, you know, what, what would it be like if, you know, if we saw a, you know, a homeless person or somebody on the side of the street and we just walked by and we waved to them and we just said, hey, Jesus loves you. Hope you're, uh, have a good day. And we just kept going. And we ignored, ignored them shivering over in the corner while we have our, you know, our toboggan or beanie and our, you know, big north you know, face coat on and stuff as we, you know, our, our boots. And we walk, we walk by and completely ignore. Who would do that, James says, right? We wouldn't do that. We would, we would hopefully make every effort we could not just to tell them, yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus wants to save you and change your life, but we're going to try to clothe that person, aren't we? We're going to try to meet that need, take them in, you know, give them some food, take care of them. It's, it's both. Jesus was intentional about meeting both the physical and the spiritual needs of those he came in to contact with. Uh, and, and notice this, Jesus intentionally modeled this in front of his disciples. At this point in his ministry, in the disciples' process of following them, this has been very much a, a watch-me portion of it. So Jesus is modeling all of this, this teaching, proclaiming, healing in front of his disciples. There's a reason for it, and we're going to come back to that later. But for now, I want you to keep, keep that in mind, that this was intentionally modeled in front of those who were following him. Jesus' mission, mission was intentional. Uh, second observation is Jesus' motivation was compassion. Jesus' motivation was compassion. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In the greater area of Galilee, which is where this situation takes place, uh, commentators estimated that there were um, around 200 cities and villages in this greater area of Galilee. So we're looking at approximately 3 million people. So this is way bigger than um, Jesus sort of looking down on the Tri-Cities area 
Um, probably think more along the lines of the entire state of Tennessee or <laughs> a much bigger area, big city kind of uh, numbers here. Three million people that he's looking down on as he, as he calls them harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Um, your translations may say warm, uh, worn and weary. And <clears throat> this might be a shocker to some of you. I, I'm not a farmer. And so I hear sheep without a shepherd, and I get this picture of, okay, you know, sheep obviously not being where they should be. Um, And so like any um, modern uh, person who's studying this and wants to kind of know more, I did what was logical. I YouTubed it. (laughs) And that's a dangerous way to go sometimes, depending on what it is you're searching for. Um, Google and YouTube can be your friends, but they can also um, not. And so <clears throat> I YouTube sheep without a shepherd search you know, or enter. And the very first, very first video I get is about a minute 15 long. And I was like, okay, this is doable. And um, I see that it's gotten enough views to where maybe it warrants my attention. And I click on it and um, I see a bunch of, bunch of sheep, uh, probably I would say 50 to 100, um, banging their head against a fence right? And it's intense, right? And finally, they, they, they bust through the fence. They bust through the fence. And at this point, it's mass chaos. Sheep just sheeping all over the place. I mean, just flying, uh, you know, running every which way. And it's, you know, they're screaming as they're going. And, you know, think of all this in like a 45-second <laughs> clip at this point. And then, this is the part where I was just like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. They just go careening off the side of a cliff. And and it shows them all just laying there. And I was like, whoa. You know, is this, <laughs> is this what sheep are like without a shepherd? Is this, is this what Jesus must have <laughs> looked at when he saw these people? People literally chasing every pursuit, every which way to peace, joy, comfort, satisfaction, every other way to the point where Jesus' only response was to have compassion for these people. And we looked at compassion a few weeks ago when we were talking about putting on the new self, and one of those virtues was compassion. But this word that's used here um, in, the, in the language of the New Testament is different. The word that Matthew uses here is different from the one that Paul uses in Colossians. Uh, the one that Paul uses in Colossians is more of your, your classic textbook example of, of mercy. And when we say compassion, uh, I think it's the standard definition would be probably more in line, along the lines of what Paul meant right there in Colossians, that we, we clothe ourselves in and compassion and mercy. This word in Matthew is different. In this word in Matthew, uh, definition would be um, a, a deep, agonizing pity. So this is an internal anguish. As one, uh, one commentator uh, describes it, defines it, he says it's that sick feeling we get in our stomachs when we are exposed to prolonged pain, and suffering. 
<laughs> that sick feeling we get in our stomachs when we're exposed to prolonged pain and suffering. I think many of us can relate to, to that to some degree at some point. Maybe we've seen somebody go through, uh, someone we love, go through something you know, really bad, painful. We feel for them. For me, I think of, uh, I think of <clears throat> a few years back, uh, probably about three years ago, uh, we had a summer where I just had, like, I was in full grill mode. And I am not, again, not a farmer, also not a very good griller. So my man card is really iffy at this point. And I, I, I just, there's a few things that I would want out of my life. I could, like, rub a genie and get, like, three physical, you know, wishes. I'd be like, I want to be a mechanic and, uh, you know, somebody could just build whatever. And I want a grill because, you know, every, you know, Father's Day commercial, there's a man holding a, you know, a grill. I was like, that's what a real man is. I'm like, oh, crap, I can't, you know. What am I doing? Where am I going wrong? So, um, but in this summer, which was probably like 2013, I was in full-blown grill mode. Every Friday night, we would, we would grill. We'd have to start a little basic um, grill out back, and we'd, you know, charcoal it up, and uh, we, would, we would grill as a family and have a, a couple friends over, and uh, we have a small porch, and uh, my son was three years old at that time, and one night I was out grilling, and he had one of those little, uh, it was like a shopping cart, you know, things, a little three-year-olds, you know, race around. This is a small area, a wooden porch, and he just takes off, you know, just around in circles around me, which I don't know how that's fun as a three-year-old, but he's just, you know, getting it like it's the Daytona 500. And loving life, but he was barefoot, right? And so strike one on me as a parent for not noticing that. Um, and so at some point he catches himself, you know, just right in the right spot and I know three years later when I tell the story it, <laughs> I'm going to say it's the biggest splinter known to man but it was a big splinter and it was dug in deep and he was hurt and so immediately I was like oh man we got to try to get this out and so um, <clears throat> what you have to know about me is I am um, I'm very sensitive to things like that I'm not a big fan of blood either again man card minus one um, I, I don't I don't like it and so I'm very concerned at that point about Drew's not, you know, trying to get him not to cry, not to get him to hurt. Uh, but at the same time, if I can get the splinter out, that's, that's a good thing, right? And so um, uh, Abby and I, we take him back to, the, to our bedroom, and we, you know, get him to lay down. And I start just kind of picking at it, right? Just, yeah, you know, not hurting him. He's not crying or anything at this point. And, um, but also, I've made no progress on the splinter whatsoever. At this point, I have to hand it over to the master. And Abby, um, I'll try to try to say this without making it sound bad. She's already looking at me. <laughs> she's compassionate, but she's very black and white. And so, when I again, when I see a splinter in a foot, I think, how can I remove this as gently as I can without hurting the person? Abby says, how can we get the splinter out as quickly as possible so that we can get back to living our lives? Again, that's how God brought us together, made us different so that we could sort of help each other along in those ways. And so I have to hand the tweezers over to Abby, who proceeds to dig much harder <laughs> into Drew's foot than I would have ever. And he screamed, guys, screamed louder than anything. I don't know that I've heard him scream that much since, right? And I felt terrible. He's laying there screaming in pain. And I couldn't do anything for him. Couldn't do anything for him. I wanted to take that. If I could put that splinter into my body, I would have, right? But I couldn't. I had to, had to stand there and listen to him scream. Well, I had to be successfully, because 
chops. He's that good. Got the splinter out of his foot. As, is that what Jesus looked upon and saw with these people? That kind of compassion, that kind of agony. And so I ask you, have you ever felt this way about the lost? Those who have never heard, those who haven't accepted, those who right now, that if they were to no longer be on this earth for whatever reason, are destined to spend eternity apart from him. Agony. I've seen this example a couple of times in my life. One, one firsthand, and it was, it was life-changing. Some of you uh, may have heard this. I heard me share this in another, another setting, but I was, it was my first semester in seminary, and I was taking, I think it was a supervised ministry class, and so ultimately our goal was eventually to, to go out to the campus of uh, University of New Orleans and, and just share with, um, get into conversations with, with college students and ultimately kind of talk to, talk to them about Jesus through those conversations. And, um, but it all started with, uh, you know, one of the lectures from our professors at that time. And um, I'm sitting in a seminary classroom, just <laughs> been a Christian all my life. I was 25 years old, saved when I was seven, so 18 years of uh, Christian um, experience in my body and uh, in my life. And, and I'm watching this guy talk to us about the current state of the lost and and First time in my life, first time in my life, 25 years old, that he's talking about those who have never heard, those who are destined to spend eternity apart from God, and just tears just rolling down his face. Just rolling down his face. And again, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I remember driving home. I remember going back and waiting for Abby to get home from work, and uh, I told her about it, and I said, I don't want to go through life concerned about myself or just myself or just my family or just my church, that I want my heart, I want my heart, I want it to break like that. I don't want to be that guy. But I want my heart to break for the lost. I think of also uh, Francis Chan, who's a pastor now out in San Francisco, and he's written a few books that some of you might have read as well. And he often shares a story of uh, he, he lost both of his parents very early in his life, um, lost some other family members. So it, uh, death was a, a recurring theme for the early part of his life, and so God taught him the value early on of there is there may be no tomorrow he understood that better than a lot of us uh, i think um go or understand it and <coughs> he recalls one time as, as a high schooler um, literally at the end of the, of the school year getting out the yearbook looking up the senior class names and just dialing numbers straight down because he was so scared that they might never get to hear it again. He may never see them again. He may never get a chance to tell them. And he wanted to make sure they knew. And, you know, I remember the first time I heard him share this. <laughs> Man. God, break my heart. Break my heart for the lost. Break it. 
to the point where, I mean, gosh, yesterday, guys, if you know Muhammad Ali, he passed away, right? And so all on the news, all on Twitter, everything, everywhere I look, it's, it's people saying, oh, here's my favorite Muhammad Ali quote. Here's my favorite Muhammad Ali story. And, and this great man, this ambassador for the world, society. Guys, I, I'm not God, right? But I do know what his word says. And unless something changed at the last minute, I also know where Muhammad Ali's allegiance lied spiritually. And he's destined to spend eternity apart from God. God knows no celebrity. He doesn't care. Does, does, what is that? I mean, what are we really focusing on and caring about? You can't conjure up this kind of compassion on our own. We can't do it. This has to come from God. And so that's why I pray, God, give us a burden. Give us a burden for the lost. Break our hearts. Break our hearts as individuals. Break our hearts as a church to where we cannot help but do this last part. Just observation number three. Jesus' call to action started with prayer. Jesus' call to action started with prayer. So again, at this time, I told you guys to remember how he was modeling this. He's been spending his time setting the example for his disciples, and it's a crucial part of their training. But this is where he starts to take the training wheels off. He's preparing to send them out on mission. And if you keep reading, if you go beyond uh, verse, verse 38, and you read into that next section, he's preparing to send them out on their, on their first journey. And so uh, this is, this is the, the beautiful picture of what it is to be a disciple because it's not just about being a disciple yes your spiritual growth is important yes your relationship with god is is important do not hear that or hear me minimizing that whatsoever but it's it is a multiplying type process we take that discipleship and we go and we become disciple makers and jesus understood that better than everyone that's why he invested in the 12 knowing that he was only going to reach you know, those three million or so people, but the ultimate plan was to reach the world, and he was going to do it through those beginnings, starting with those 12. So he starts to take the training wheels off. And so after agonizing over these people, he turns to his disciples, and don't miss the importance of this moment of what he tells them. He says to his disciples, Christians, this, this, is, this is for us. These are the words that are meant for us. Since the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Jesus, in the immediate context, was considering three million or so people in and around him at that time. But let me put that into, into terms and into context for us today. Today, we must consider the 4.5 billion people in this world who don't know him as their Savior. Right now, there are approximately 6,000 plus unreached people groups. What does it mean when I when you hear people group? When we hear uh, the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, don't think United States, Mexico, Canada. Um, that's not necessarily what the, um, the New Testament meant by nations. New Testament understood it more as in terms of ethnicities. And so they understand it best as people groups. And these are uh, groups of people who share an identity based on language or ethnicity. 
And so right now, there's an estimated 6,000 plus unreached people groups. And that means uh, we've got 2% or less Christian presence in those areas. So 2%, 2 out of 100. 3,000 or so unengaged, unreached people groups. And what does it mean to be unengaged? Out of those 2%, there are places... (laughs) hard to reach places where there is currently no active church plant in or around these people groups right now 3,000 and that first number that 6,000 plus unreached people groups that's at an estimated 2 billion people so we have about 2 billion out of 7 billion that are 2% or less Christian in the world we live in 3,000 again so guys chances are they have not even heard of his name. Oh my gosh. Again, you cannot manufacture this, but I pray, oh I pray, as you hear those stats, that they're not just numbers. Those are people. They're people. Just like you and me, we didn't get the opportunity to choose where we live. We were fortunate enough, for whatever reason, it's by God's grace, to be born in a place we have access. That if we're not followers of Christ, it's not because there's no one around us that has never told us. But there are people out there that are in those situations. The need is great. The harvest is plentiful. Jesus adds on to that and says the workers are few. So not only is the need great, but there's a shortage of workers. And you have to imagine at this point the disciples are feeling the pressure. Hey, you're not giving us some hopeful stuff here. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to, if the need's great and there's so few of us, what are we supposed to do? Right, Jesus? What are we supposed to do? What are we as a church supposed to do? Jesus' solution was simple. It starts with this, pray. Yes, the need is great, but so is the opportunity. The opportunity. And to pray earnestly. Jesus says, pray earnestly. In other words, beg. Beg him for this. Beg. This is an extension of the Great Commission, guys. As mentioned earlier, this is not one of those like, uh, optional, you know, do this, but... I can sort of, this is our, this is our, this is our call. If we are followers of Christ, this is the heartbeat of what our lives are meant to be. Beg, beg him for labors to go into the harvest where the need is the greatest, where it needed the most to shine a light in the darkest places of this earth that's where it all starts and our desire to be ascending church starts with prayer god may find us as a church body on our faces asking god how would you use this church and all its people across both campuses all its resources how can you leverage our lives as a church body so that we can reach our city and our country, our world with the gospel. How? 
on our knees, guys, saying, whatever. I don't care what it looks like. I don't, I don't care if I, if I stay, if you want me to stay and just live it out here, and maybe I support uh, missionaries who will go, or maybe you, maybe you want me to go, and maybe I've been holding back. Just, just lay it all out there. No more holding back. Church body, don't think of it here. This is not a leadership question. This is a, what are each one of us that call ourselves members of this body going to do to push this forward and to make this a reality? When we all see that as our responsibility, then we've got something cooking. We really do. Then God can really use us to our full potential as a, as a body to, to reach the nations and to accomplish his mission. That's where it all starts. And this is where we find our place, our role in the Great Commission. This is where we find our place. For those of us asking, God, what do I even possibly have to contribute? I'm not very good at, you know, I've got this job that I need to keep. I can't, I can't travel. I don't have that much money to give. Um, guys, I, I don't know. I, you know, this is one of those things where I can't tell you what this looks like for you and for all of us to copy and paste one person's example of how that looks for them would be wrong all I know is the mission is there and if you call yourself a follower of Christ the mission is for you and it's for me and so for us to pray the prayer God what does this look like in my life I don't think that's optional um and I don't think he's going to hide the answer from you. Because again, this is what he is about. He is about getting glory for making his name known to all nations. If we can be obedient enough to pray that, humbly asking God, laying it all on the table, he will answer. Jesus asked us to, for us not just to pray, but to pray that laborers would be sent out. And again, the, the English kind of just doesn't <laughs> capture the full essence of what this word is. It literally, um, in, in the language of the New Testament, means to thrust out. So I told Abby about that the other night. She's like, oh, like, like shooting out of a, you know, like something shooting out. I'm like, yes. Like shot out of a cannon. Pray that God would shoot us out into this world. Not just, you know, tiptoeing our way around. Sent out. Pray. We pray for expecting God. <laughs> Man, my prayer would be that there would be some of us in this room today whose mission becomes a little bit clearer today that we would ultimately be able to send out from here And make that great commission a reality. What would our world look like if we put all this into practice? What would you look like? Guys, this is one of those questions that I've, I mean, I've, I've had it on my heart in some ways or another for the last <coughs> 10, 10, 12 years. And um, it is a process. And 
the scariest, the most, yet most freeing thing you could do is to honestly come to a point in your life where you just, you just do your best to let go. You let go of the will. You say, I'm tired of, tired of dictating where I work, where I live, what I do, and just assuming that it's all supposed to be my plans, that God, you are the driver. That's a scary prayer. And I'm by no means going to stand up here and tell you that I have mastered the reality of that. But in the moments that I feel God and have felt him push me forward in that, it's the most freeing moments as a Christian I've ever felt in my life. Is there something about taking a step in obedience that you know you're supposed to take that seems nutso to everybody else around you. But knowing that he is with you, that great commission ends, lo, I am with you always. It's not just us taking this step alone or with our families alone. He is with us. And there's something that just makes all of these words, these sermons or Bible stories that you read and have read maybe throughout your life, it comes to life. It comes to life. And and it means something totally different because now you're not just taking in, you're living it out. And that is what it's meant to be. So a couple of final um, challenges that I want to leave with you before we close. Number one, pray for a balanced perspective of reaching the poor and the lost. Second, pray for God to break your heart for the lost. Pray for compassion. God, if we can be a people that agonizes over the state that our world's in. Number three, pray for God to send people into the unreached places of this world to share the gospel. And also to pray for those who are in those places right now. Pray for our church. That God would thrust some of us out of here into an area of need. And then last, prayerfully ask God, what would you have me do? In light of all of this, what does that look like for my life? What does that look like for my family's life? The way that we function, the things that we do, things we invest our time, energy, money in. What does that look like? This is part of what it means for us to to make Jesus Lord of your life. It means your life is no longer your own. He guides your life. He guides your life. Lost person, uh, for those of you who are on the fence and are considering what that, what that means, it would essentially mean that you can't do it on your own. You weren't meant to do it on your own. You need a Savior. That Savior is one who lived a perfect life, who came and died on a cross so that you might be saved. It's not about praying some artificial prayer. It's about understanding who you are apart from him, understanding what he did for you, and then placing your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as the way to heaven. And we joyfully, out of that, we live for his glory. Guys, whatever that may be, whatever that may be, 
wherever that may be, whatever that may look like. Let's bow our heads.